0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Before we begin, this series features remarkable stories told by remarkable people. Some of the events they discuss and some of the words they use to describe their experiences can be, how shall I say this, quite colorful. This programme contains strong language and descriptions of an adult nature. Listener discretion is advised.
2: We thought like lots of gay men at that time that it was something that was only happening in America. And then when we did think about it, we thought it was something that only impacted on white men. And then slowly over those years, from about 86 to the late 80s, we started to see more and more people that we knew become infected or get ill and then die. And then HIV became very, very present in our world.
1: This is Mark Thompson. How have you been finding our endless winter lockdown?
2: Oh dear, it feels like it's been about four years. But I've been all right, I've got my dog Travis here, so, you know, I'm not completely isolated.
1: There's so many cliches when it comes to sharing the journeys of LGBTQ people. I think, hopefully, across this series, we've shown that life is far more complicated, that no one story can capture everybody's experience. And meeting Mark, I'm struck by this fact more than ever. There's a word Mark brings up a lot whenever he describes his life, and that word is lucky. As you hear more of his story, you might think it's a strange word to use, but in some ways, I think he's absolutely right. It was luck, good or bad, that changed the course of his life irreversibly as a teenager, taking him around the world and to the forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV and the stigma it comes with. But of course, it was more than luck that made Mark who he is today. It was also community. And what's remarkable about Mark is that at his lowest point, where he didn't have community around him, he went out and created a new one you're listening to Call Me Mother, a collection of conversations with queer elders. I'm Sean Fay. Each episode, I'll be talking with an LGBTQ trailblazer who has something important, interesting, or enlightening to say about what it means to be queer in the world today. By talking to older queer people, we want the stories in this series to create a sense of community across generational lines. By the end, our hope is that you have the language you need to grapple with new experiences by showing that you belong to a much broader history. And in this episode, Mark's story, which I'll let him begin.
2: My name's Mark and I was born and raised in Brixton in the late 60s, just before the 70s. For me, it was a really safe, comfortable place. It was a really tight-knit African Caribbean community. All of my family lived here, so it was really familiar to me. Um, All of the shops and the business were overwhelmingly black-owned and black-run and kind of met the needs of, of the community. You know, and I have lots of memories of growing up here and roaming the streets and playing in rough areas, you know, which were today's because of health and safety. You wouldn't be able to go near. but also spending Saturday afternoons in Brixton Market, you know, with my with my mum going shopping and being in record shops where reggae music would be blasting out or, you know, um, there'd be rasters everywhere. So really strong, happy memories of a place here.
1: One thing that's interesting about your story that might surprise a lot of people, too, is I think we have a lot of um certain stereotypes about what it was like to be gay at a certain point in history. And what's interesting about your story is that you came out quite young and you actually said it wasn't too bad. (laughs) You know, a lot of people think it's like people were living double lives for decades on end and, you know, absolutely petrified. But your experience wasn't that.
2: It was July the 13th, 1985. I remember it clearly. And um, I'd gone to my first black gay party and I stayed out all night. And I came in at about seven o'clock the following morning and in my bedroom, hidden away was a number for gay switchboard, which my teacher had given to me. And I got in and my mum had rifled through my stuff and she found the number, but she'd put it back, but I knew she'd found it. And then that afternoon she sat me down and she said, is there something wrong? Is there anything wrong? And I could never lie to my mum. And I told her that I'm gay. And I didn't say, I think I'm gay. I didn't say I'm confused. I said, I'm gay. It is what it is. And um, she recommended that I see um, a counsellor, but not because she wanted me to change. She just wanted to make sure that I was okay and this was the right decision for me. But she was also concerned, because this is the mid 80s, and she was concerned that I might be being manipulated by older people. So she wanted to make sure that I was safe. So that was that. And then she was great. My dad um, was a Jamaican man, a little bit loud, a little bit homophobic, a little bit homophobic. And one night he was in a pub in Brixton, which was filled with lots of other Jamaican men. And he was there making up lots of noise about, you know, making homophobic comments. Let's just leave it there. And somebody turned around to, well, how can you say that? One of your, your son is one of those. And the fight ensued. My dad was really angry and he called my mum and said I need to talk to you and my mum was like your dad's on the phone he's coming over because they'd divorced at that point and I expected my dad to come round and kick off to be really you know dad about it and I said to him I'm 21 I don't ask you for anything I pay my own bills and I never brought trouble to your door And my dad turned around and he was like don't understand it I don't get it but you're my son and I love you and that's the most important thing. And a couple, about ten years later, he would ring up and he would wind up my boyfriend, pretending to be another guy that I was seeing. So um, yeah, that was my dad's way of dealing. It was to wind up my boyfriends later on. So I was really fortunate in in that way um, to have my family who
1: supported me. And with that, aged just sixteen, Mark entered a whole new world.
2: I remember going along to this party and the door being opened by this six foot three black guy who was completely glamorous and totally fabulous and just screamed welcome and that was my entry and I just went to this place and it was just filled with Black gay men from all over London, from different parts of the Caribbean. Um, They played music that my parents had listened to. They had food that we would have at parties. Um, So that was a really, really good introduction to my community and finding my tribe. The gay scene was still quite racist. So there were racist door policies, or you would go into venues and the other punters might have racist or stereotypical attitudes towards you. You know, we were fetishized. in some ways it was much safer for us to be in black spaces. And also there was the music and the cultural stuff that we weren't getting. So I could go to, you know, heaven or bangs and I'd hear lots of high energy and see lots of clones and smell lots of poppers. And it just wasn't me where well, I would go to a house party and I'd hear reggae music, a bit of soul, a bit of soca. And I wouldn't smell poppers. I'd probably smell a bit of ganja, a bit of weed. I really hit my stride of going out when I was probably about 18 or 19 and um it continued in that vein for about 25 years and I would go out nearly every single night
1: <laughs> I suppose you did come out at 16 and so you were quite you were quite young and you had you had the energy so <laughs>
2: well I had a lot of energy and I'm really sociable and I like dancing and I love meeting people and there were so many spaces to go to. I think what's really sad is that, you know, we're seeing queer spaces disappear and COVID certainly hasn't helped that. So I hope that, you know, things change as we come out of lockdown.
1: So it was 1985 and Mark was in his element, tearing up London's pubs, clubs and house parties in a way that I don't think I'd ever have the stamina to do. But there was, of course, something looming large in the background of this sparkling teenage life and that something was AIDS. When did you first hear about HIV, AIDS and Do you remember what people were talking about when when they talked about it?
2: I mean, I heard about the virus or this thing that was entering into the gay community way before I came out. And I was at school and I used to steal gay magazines from shops. (laughs) And um, there was one of them in particular called um, Him. And on the front cover was an image of young gay men in test tubes. And I remember being about 14, 15 and, and, and thinking about this, but it not really resonating in any serious way with me. And when I did come out in 1985 and start to hang out with my friends, it was a quiet conversation, but it was over there. It was somebody else's issue. And it was only in late 1986, when the test became available, that people in my community around me, in my circle, started to talk about it, which then prompted me to get my own test.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: In those days, you had to wait two weeks for a result. Um, and I went off about my business and then came back two weeks later um, to get the result. And I'd actually booked in lunch with a friend that day because I was like, well, I'll, I'll be out of here in 10 minutes and I can carry on with my life and my day. And um, 10 minutes later, my life completely changed. The doctor who told me was slightly older, um, probably wouldn't get away with his practice these days because he was a little bit touchy-feely. He recognised that I was really young and I was really scared and he gave me the biggest hug that I remember. And. Um, told me you know that he, he he couldn't give me a prognosis he didn't say that I'm gonna die he was like we just don't know what to do but we'll keep monitoring you we'll keep looking
1: after you in that 10 minute appointment just a year after he came out the trajectory of Mark's life changed
2: I was 17, um, about to embark on my life, about to do my A-levels. The plan was for me to go to university, the first in my family, and that was quickly pulled away from me because I expected to only live six months to a year if I was lucky. And so for a young man to be presented with his own mortality at that really early age was devastating. And it wasn't just your own mortality, this was a highly stigmatized disease All of the images that we saw were of painful, lonely, isolated deaths. And so that was really, really frightening for me. And it completely upended everything. I slowly lost interest in college. I lost interest in the future. um, And I just wanted to live for now. I spent a lot of time being really angry with the world, a lot of time crying, and just walking around in a daze for months. And I remember one New Year's Eve in particular just standing there just bawling my eyes out because I just didn't know what the future held for me. And so for a good couple of years, I just walked around in, in a wilderness, I think is the best way to describe that. The other thing I had to handle as well was that I told a couple of friends who then told a couple of their friends who told a couple of their friends. And in this small community I was in, I became known behind my back as Mark with the virus.
1: This stigma left Mark increasingly lonely. And so, like many people diagnosed as HIV positive at the time, he turned to one of the many support hubs that had popped up to help people cope with the condition.
2: I went to a place in Brixton called The Landmark, which was a drop-in centre, which provided great services to people in the community. And obviously, you know, when I went there, you know, it would be a lovely space, great food. You could get lots of therapies. um, You could talk to people. And it was a real sense of community. But it really was challenging at times because when I was young, Um, And a lot of the people there were slightly older than me. Secondly, I was a black man. So again, you know, very often uh, most of the clients or service users were white. And also I wasn't unwell. So to go into those spaces, to be young, to be black, to be well, when there are lots of people who are older, whiter and unwell,
1: was really difficult for me at times. Feeling somewhat cut off from both his original circle of friends and from the new support networks he found after being diagnosed as HIV positive, Mark decided to create a new community.
2: When something wasn't there for me, I went out and I built my own. I created my own spaces. So I worked with other black gay men to run discussion groups initially. And then in 1995, I was really lucky um, that a a couple of men had got some funding to set up an organisation called Big Up which was set up explicitly to provide health promotion and prevention information to black gay men, to provide support to those of us who were diagnosed positive. It was culturally appropriate and culturally specific. So everything we did was targeted, used the right language, use the right imagery, worked in the spaces where black gay men met and socialized it didn't just attract people that wanted to go on an act up march and and produce a banner and shout at people what it did was to bring together a group of men who were just infused and motivated to do something for their community bus drivers or doctors or academics you know through to guys that worked as bouncers in nightclubs or who were djs or just men that were unemployed and you know, didn't have anything to do with their time. The key thing is that they just felt that nobody was doing anything for us. And so they wanted to do something, but it was so much fun. And I just remember, you know, that we'd have volunteer meetings and, you know, once we'd done all the business, we would descend into some kind sort of madness and the kiki or our Christmas parties were infamous because they were so much fun. But the beauty of it was that we were completely rooted in our community, it wasn't we are doing this to you, we are doing this with you because we are you.
1: Big Up was only the beginning of Mark's work to support black people living with HIV. He has an amazing philosophy, which has turned what could have been a tragedy into a positive and defining point in his life.
2: It's beginning to sound like a cliche, but I often say now that HIV gave me more than it ever took away. I went to um, Black Pride in Washington DC and I went to an event um, run by a group called Us Helping Us which was a support group for black people who were living with HIV and they held a Sunday service and I remember being at this service and there were some really sick people, really, people who were really ill, dying of AIDS, up on the stage just celebrating their life and it was so affirming. And I came out of that day and I remember phoning my mum from a hotel phone, which is really expensive, a landline, and telling her, I know why I got HIV, mum. I got it so I can make a difference. And from that moment on, I was committed to the work because I knew that I didn't just get this and I didn't just survive and never got ill to just sit around and have a wonderful life. I got it so I can make a difference. I could challenge and make things better for other people that looked and loved like I do. I always believe that if you if you lose somebody or something it opens up a space for somebody else or something to come in. And losing people because of HIV stigma, Um, if I met a partner who rejected me because of my HIV, it just meant that there was somebody hotter and better around the corner that was accepting, that would love me and I could fall in love with. And that happened several times.
1: What do you think is one piece of advice you'd give your younger self? Stay away from toxic men.
2: You will fall for
1: them, but stay away from them.
2: Word. (laughs) (laughs) Or don't get into long relationships with them. Get the D and get out. Don't be frightened to leap forward. And you know more than you know. You have all of the answers inside of you. Just be patient and you'll find them. The stories we have around queer history in this country are decriminalisation, Clause 28 and gay marriage. Boom, 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 boom. But there were so many things that happened in between those points. I think it's really important that we we can look back to the last epidemic, the the HIV epidemic, we can learn. And I think one of the things that we can learn is that in times of adversity, communities who are marginalised or oppressed can come together. And when we have a, a common fight, we should join forces and we can really create amazing things in response to that. It was a dark time and we were fighting a fight. We were in the middle of our generation's war, you know, where people were dying all around us. We had a government that didn't care and a media that was particularly virulent and violent towards us. But I think what's really important for people to remember is that we were incredibly young. And with that, you have a certain sense of bravado. But we did have fun. We tried to create good energy. We needed time to deal with the grief, to deal with the anger. And sometimes that might have been partying. So, you know, I would work really, really hard at my job and my activism, but I also partied really hard. Going out and dancing and listening to good music and being with my friends and chasing boys was the stuff that got me through to enable me to go to work the next day and deal with friends or loved ones who may be ill or maybe dying or people who may be been kicked out of their homes. So there was fun alongside all of the, the, the bad stuff that was happening and we needed that fun. We absolutely
1: needed it. Mark spent his whole adult life working for change and he's achieved a pretty impressive amount of it. He now sees in younger people a bright future for queer communities.
2: I'm really hopeful and optimistic because we've got a great, young, vibrant, visible community in a way that we never had before. And sometimes I'm like, young people, just stop making so much noise. But I'm really, really glad that that's here. You know, when I speak to any of the younger guys that I call my nephews, and they respectfully call me Uncle Mark, um, it's always a great opportunity for me. I'm always excited. It's like, okay, so today's the day I'm going to get some fresh new idea. What I'm really excited about is that post-lockdown and this crazy period that we're in, this will give us an opportunity to...
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.
2: Now, I thought about where the queer community was going before lockdown, and in some ways for me, it was kind of on its knees, especially the social aspect of it. You know, our venues were closing, they were under attack, there were less spaces for us to go, or they were being merged into straight venues and straight spaces. And I'm hoping that, lockdown give us an opportunity to think about so what do we do next what does it look like and I'm hoping that it rejuvenates and revitalizes our community both in activism but also in partying and socializing and I often say to my older activist friends the kids are all right we can pass on the bat and then retire but I have no intention of doing that anytime soon
1: you've been listening to call me mother produced by novel and supported by the audio content fund the series was presented by me sean fay it was produced and edited by thomas curry and pippa Smith. the executive producers were max o'brien and sean glynn sound design and mixing by joel cox